your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today. And uh, we're going to take a little, tiny little break from our Romans series to do an Advent series. And as Zach mentioned earlier in the service, Advent refers to the coming of the Lord. Not just his first coming that we look back upon, but also his second coming that we look forward to. And so this is really a season of anticipation, a season where we reflect upon how amazing an event it was that God came and dwelt among us in human flesh, in human skin, in Jesus Christ. And so we've titled this series, Awaiting the King, Awaiting the King. And we're going to be looking at some of the prophecies through the book of Isaiah that point to Jesus Christ. And I, I couldn't help but feel the sense of nostalgia when I heard, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. Or when, when you look around, you see these wreaths and sort of the, the Christmas festivities are about to begin. And these are, all, these are all signs, cultural signs, that a new season has come, that there's a shift, that something different is happening. And it ties into our nostalgia. Maybe you think of growing up as a kid and seeing wreaths all around and hearing Christmas music playing and seeing the ornaments lit uh, on the trees and the, and, the, and the lights and everything around that kind of spreads this Christmas atmosphere. And these are all cues in our mind. Christmas is coming. Christmas is about to happen. And in a similar way, when you look at the Old Testament prophecies of Christ, especially when the New Testament, when you read through the Gospels or you read through Paul's letters and he quotes the Old Testament, he's hewing us in. He's bringing up these quotations to remind his audience to the first century Christians, to those who grew up as Israelites, to remind them that God has promised to do some things. And that one, the New Testament quotes these Old Testament passage, it's saying God is about to accomplish the things that he's promised. It's meant to cue us in, to be the familiar theme to remind us that God is faithful. And the particular cue we're going to look at today is the cue of a particular sign, the sign of Emmanuel. And you might have heard this preached on before. You might have heard this uh, verse put up uh, you know, on windows and billboards and stuff like that. But, but this is a very powerful section of Scripture. And I want us to take some time in it. We're not going to read the entirety of chapter 7, but we're just going to look at verses 10 through 17 about this mysterious sign that God gives to his people in a child named Emmanuel, and how that connects to Jesus Christ and the Christmas story. So read along with me. You can follow in your Bibles, or the verses will pop up on the screen as well. This is Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Well, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. 
For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So Isaiah's challenge to Israel in his day, specifically to the kingdom of Judah, and we we will talk about that in a second, is the same challenge he gives to us today. Will we trust God and that he's with us, or will we trust man, our own resources, false gods, things of this earth that we put our ultimate hope in? That's the question that's pressing in on us from this passage. And the, the, this passage happens in the middle of a national catastrophe uh, when they are facing threats from invading armies. And oftentimes it's, it's when you face threats of that nature that your real allegiance, what you really trust in, comes to the surface. I remember reading about a story uh, during World War II. There's a, a, a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, incredible preacher, maybe one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. And he was pastoring a church uh, in the UK, in London, during the bombing raids that, that, that Nazi Germany would, would attack in the middle of the night or in the mornings, uh, different cities and places and areas in the UK. And Martin Lloyd-Jones happened to be preaching. He was actually praying during a service when a bomb exploded right outside of their church, and it shook the foundations of the entire building. To Some of the plaster in the ceilings actually fell and started hitting people in his congregation. It was a devastating event. And Lloyd-Jones, he paused, he prayed, he finished the prayer, and they continued with the service. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what I would have done in that situation. I'm I'm not saying that that was the most responsible thing in the world, but it does point to, it's a great symbolic vision of, okay, when our backs are against the wall, who do we trust? When things are actually difficult, when things are out of our control, that's the acid test of our faith, of, of what we actually believe, of whether we really believe that God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. Whether we believe that's actually true or that's just some kind of sentimental quote that we tell to ourselves. So Isaiah is pressing that issue. Where do your loyalties genuinely, truly lie? And so in Isaiah 7, God is saying, trust me. You're facing military threats. You're facing uncertainty in your nation, in the future. Trust me. I am with you. But there's a flip side. When God gives a sign, it has two methods of motivation. On the one hand, there's a positive motivation. God's with us. God's going to help you. He's going to bless you if you trust him. There's a negative side. If you refuse to trust him, he will curse you. He will forsake the blessing and he will bring upon you, your nation, the discipline of God. So there is something to be lost. And so the stakes rise even higher. The sign of Emmanuel is a sign both of blessing and judgment, both of blessing and curse. 
And we're going to see that in this passage. And I want to look at those two angles. First, I want to look at the blessing of trusting God. And then I want to look at the curse of trusting God. And I'm going to bring it all together to see how all of those things are fulfilled in Christ. So let's first look at the blessing of God. What are the blessings of trusting God? Right? God gives a sign, Emmanuel, I am with you. Now, this is the situation that they're facing and why those words would be words of comfort if you believe them. So the king that we're meeting here is King Ahaz. King Ahaz isn't really a great guy. He's a, a ruler of the southern kingdom Judah. So if you think about it, after King Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two parts. The northern part became what's called, what, what's generally referred to as just Israel or Samaria, or in this passage, Ephraim. So I'm just going to say Ephraim. I might say Israel. Just That's what I'm talking about, the northern kingdom, Ephraim. The, the southern kingdom is Judah. And Judah is where King Ahaz is ruling. So Israel split into two, Ephraim, Judah. We're in Judah. And King Ahaz is ruling Judah. And Isaiah is a prophet. He's a spokesperson for God. And prophets are kind of like the people who, they're, they're, they're sort of like the, the people who go, remember your vows to God. Right? Remember that if you obey him, you will live. If you disobey him, you will die. You will perish. You'll be cut out of the land. So that's his job. He's a voice of truth, the voice of God into a society. So we're in the southern part in Judah, and there's, there's something that they're worried about. The northern kingdom, Ephraim, has allied with another kingdom, Syria. They formed a little alliance, and they wanted to get Judah to join them. But Judah doesn't want to join them. And so they go, well, then we're going to attack you. We're going to invade you, and we're going to set up our own king, and then we're going to make you join us. So King Ahaz has this political catastrophe coming in view. He's worried about Ephraim and Syria allying and they're coming up, and they're about to attack him. And he starts to think to himself, Judah at the time was allied with another large empire called Assyria. And so King Ahaz is going, okay, these people are coming to attack. We're kind of a small nation here. Maybe I'll ally with Assyria. We'll make a little treaty with them, have them help, and then we'll have some more firepower to fight off Ephraim and Syria. And it sounds like a, a wise political move. You want to get allies, boost up your military, get somebody who's got some muscle to flex on the people who are attacking you. But Isaiah's message and God's message through Isaiah to King Ahaz is striking. It's counterintuitive. It almost seems foolish. He tells him, don't do that. Don't ask for help from Assyria. I'm going to take care of you. God's going to deal with it for you. Think about the faith that that takes. And he's saying, don't go for this massive ally and you're facing possibly catastrophic losses, the destruction of your kingdom, the end of your civilization. And God says, don't worry about it. Trust me, I will, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. It's a shocking message. Now, God does this because God is with Judah. He is with the southern kingdom. Why? Why is that so important? 
because Judah is the tribe that contains the house of David. That's why Isaiah says to Ahaz, Hear then, O house of David. He refers to Ahaz and his lineage. Now the house of David, that's a very crucial term to understand because it alludes to a promise that God made to King David and to his line, to all the offspring that will come from David. It's in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13. This is the promise that God gives to David. He tells David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God tells David, I'm going to establish an eternal kingdom from your line and an eternal throne from your lineage. And this implies something. If God promises to preserve the line of David, that means that he will personally protect that line until everything he wants to accomplish is accomplished. So what Ahaz must believe is, look, God is going to make good on this promise. God will establish an eternal kingdom. So you don't need to worry about these attacking people. Israel and your kingly line will have a future. But what is the only thing he has to go on Despite everything that he sees, it's the words of God, the invisible promise of God. That's what he clings to. God said this, and against everything else that I see, that's what I must believe. But God goes even further than just giving an audible sign or, or a verbal sign. He gives a visible sign. He gives a sign to help Ahaz's faith. You probably all, at some point, asked God for a sign. I think we've all done that. You know, sit at a red light, turns green, take the job, or something like that. You know, we have sort of a superstitious relationship. I remember uh, I was at an airport, and I saw this billboard. It was for a church, and it said, this is your sign from God. I was like, that's very, that's clever marketing, right? And, uh, but, but I think about that, we, 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 we have this need for signs, and, and that sign that says, this is your sign from God, it, it taps into an impulse that we have to say, you know, God, will, will you just show me something so that I can trust you? All right, will you just give me a, a sign so that, that I can actually believe that you're with me, that you're going to help me, and all, and all those kinds of things. But, but we're actually told not to do that. We're not to put God to the test. That's why Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty nine, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. All right, when we kind of ask God to be our like little, you know, court jester or do something for me, and then maybe I'll believe you. We're we're putting God to the test. It's it's saying that that what He's revealed is not enough for us to trust Him. So we're not to put the Lord to the test. But here is a different situation. God actually gives us a sign. So we're not supposed to ask for a sign, but man, when God gives us one, 
We take it. We take it and run. We take it and believe it for all that it's worth. And you notice Ahaz. Remember, he's not a, he's not a great dude, right? He's led Israel into idolatry. He actually sacrificed his own son. You read that in 2 Kings. And uh, he's, he's all around just a, a kind of a corrupt leader. But notice what he says. Isaiah tells him, look, there's going to be a sign. A virgin shall conceive of a child named Emmanuel. And by the time he grows up, he can tell right and wrong. The northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim, and Syria will be deserted. They'll be defeated. You won't have to worry about them. And this boy is a sign. When this child is born, it's a sign to help your faith, to make you believe my invisible promise. A visible sign to help you understand my invisible promises. And Ahaz goes, no, thank you, Lord. I don't want to put you to the test. Very pious, right? And God goes, what are you talking about? It's kind of like God's just like, no, trust me, you need this. You really do need this. But you see Ahaz's pride and his unbelief. God gives him a gracious sign. This is for you. This is a gift for you to help your weak faith. God knows that our faith is weak. He knows that we waver, and he says, take the sign. And Ahaz goes, I'll pass. You can see the hard-heartedness of Ahaz. God reaching out to help him, to love him, to show him, to give him hope. And Ahaz's pride blinds him to that. I don't want to put you to the, It's mass and religious language. I would never put the Lord my God to the test. And God's like, well, actually, this time I want you to ask for a sign. I'm telling you to do something. God is wearied by Ahaz's, Ahaz's attitude of unbelief. But God, in his grace, gives his sign anyway. He tells him, if you trust me, look, you're going to be taken care of. God's going to defeat your enemies. You look throughout the Old Testament, it's what God says over and over again. Israel, you're small, you're weak, but I'm with you. I'm going to send an angel to clear out the land for you. Don't worry about how big the armies are. God is with you. And this is this idea of God being with us. It's, you know, it's, it's not this sort of, you know, when people are like, I'm with you in spirit. You're like, thank you. I appreciate that. No, no, this is, this is the God, the, the, the Lord, the, the king of hosts, the king of armies, the, of heavenly armies. He's the one who dwells with Israel, with God's people. And he goes with them and leads them into battle and gives them victory, gives their enemies over into their hands. It's a powerful promise of God's presence, that he will be with his people to accomplish all that he has purposed. And we have signs that God gives to us. We have two signs. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are visible signs of God's invisible promises. And what do these things tell us? That God's with us. When you're baptized, what's, what's, it's God saying, you are mine. I've put my name, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on you. That is your identity. That is what you look back on and remember. You're being clothed in power, in baptism, being welcomed into the family of God. And then we have the Lord's Supper, God with us at the table, extending grace to us week after week, 
reminding us that God doesn't just tolerate us, but he wants to commune with us as a people in the most intimate way of of, of showing fellowship and hospitality around a table with food of bread and wine. And why does he give us these signs? Because he knows our faith is weak. Because he wants us to be blessed. He knows that we are prone to wander, that we doubt. And so week after week, take the supper. Day after day, remember your baptism. Take these signs that God gives us and make them your own and reflect on them. And that is how God strengthens our faith. You see the compassion of God. He has not left us without resources. Now, maybe your faith is so strong that you don't have to come to church every week that you know you're, you're, you're fine you know doing whatever it is you're doing and I just I just don't believe it I just think that I mean we've all we all understand faith it's difficult life is difficult we fluctuate so much in our faith like I was saying before and so when we come to church we're not doing God a favor we're not, we're not reminding God hey you know keep, keep this Christianity thing going we're with you God calls us to worship because it's what's best for us. Out of his love and compassion, he calls us here. Sing, hear the word, say the word, see the word in the Lord's Supper. Come here, gather together, pray with each other, sing with and to each other. Because I love you. And I want you to be blessed. God is a fountain of grace overflowing over and over again. That is such a positive motivation to trust him when you see how lavish he is with his grace, grace upon grace toward his people. Receive the signs that God has given us to grow and think, where in your life are you trusting man over God? Where in your life do you doubt that God is really with you? That's exactly the point. Whatever came to mind, whatever you are fearful of, that's exactly the point in which He wants you to believe and to be strengthened in your faith that he's with you in that moment. So there's a consequence to not trusting God. There aren't just blessings, but consequences. And so this is the flip side. Look at verse 17 of Isaiah 7. So he gives a promise. By the time this boy Emmanuel grows up, I'm going to take care of your problem. You won't have to worry about it. Trust that. But, then he says, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So what he's saying is, look, Ahaz, I know you're a bad guy. I know you're wicked. I'm still going to deliver you from Israel, from from, uh, Ephraim and Syria. I'll take care of that. But also, I'm still going to deal with your sin of not trusting me, of your unbelief. And he says that Assyria, the very nation that he was going to trust ally with, will actually come in and invade. And and Assyria will be a tool of judgment against the unbelief of Ahaz in Judah. He says that I'm going to bring upon your house such days that haven't happened since Israel split into two. That's essentially what he's saying. So there's a dark side to this. There's more at stake than missing 
out on God's blessing. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verses 17 to 18. God tells his people, If your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Ahaz's unbelief is a symptom of a larger problem of Israel's, of Judah's idolatry. Now, you have to see how gracious God is. He goes, look, Ahaz, you're being hard-hearted. I'm still going to deliver you, right? But just because I'm going to let it pass this one time doesn't mean I'm not going to deal with your sin. Right? Have you ever had a friend who, like, they make terrible decisions, but somehow they just, it just works out for them, and you're like, I'm glad that it worked out, but, like, I kind of want you to learn from your mistakes. I don't want you to be enabled. Well, God is like that. He's saying, look, I'm going to graciously deliver you, but I'm also going to deal with your sin. I'm going to deal with it through the discipline of sending a nation to attack you. Now, let's think about Judah. Israel was created, the, the United Kingdom of Israel was created to be a light to the Gentiles, to be a light to the nations, to show them, man, this is how blessed it is to be God's people. And instead of doing that, they became like the nations. They started worshiping their gods. And they became corrupt. And God can't let that stand because of his perfect goodness. So God enacts curses to discipline his people. He brings upon Israel the consequences of their sin to purify them, to train them, to grow them up. And if you look at the end of Isaiah 7, there's a bunch of explanations of that judgment. He says, not only will Emmanuel tell you that I'll protect you from Israel and Syria, but he's also going to sign that I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to whistle. He kind of calls the nations like a little dog. He whistles for Assyria. And like a razor, it's going to shave the, the hair off of Judah. It's, this, it's a metaphor for humiliation to shave the beard of Judah. And he's going to bring devastation upon the land. And thorns and thistles and briars are going to erupt out of the land. If, if, if you listen to that wording, that reminds you of Genesis chapter 3, when God curses Adam. And he says, from the ground will sprout thorns and thistles, and your work will be laborious and difficult. Well, God is bringing that curse upon his own people. Don't think you're in the clear. We're going to deal with your behavior. He's not going to let Judah's ongoing sin stand. Right? Like you just go to school and your kid's in the principal's office and they're about to get a detention or something. You're like, no, I'll handle this. Like, fine, we won't give them detention. But you bring them home and you're like, just because you escaped that consequence doesn't mean I'm not going to deal with you. There's still going to be consequences. I'm still going to deal with you. God's still going to deal with his people. And it kind of sounds like, wow, God sounds kind of harsh. Right? Do you ever think about the Old Testament? God's just trigger happy, waiting to just smash everyone. When you read the Old Testament, remember, it's written over thousands of years. I mean, God saves Israel, brings them out of slavery, gives them the law, says, you're my people, my holy possession. And then, like, week one, they build an idol. And God is patient with them. Think about like the book of Judges. 
And you think about the book of Kings. This king was bad. He was worse. This was even worse than that one. This was kind of good. Then he got bad again. I mean, that's like the, the whole downward spiral over and over and over again. And God still maintains their kingdom, still prospers their land, still is patient, never, is, is, is long-suffering, not kicking them out of the land. So you actually find that God in the Old Testament is incredibly gracious and kind and patient, bearing with his people. The name Israel even means those who struggle and wrestle with God. Not those who are faithful and amazing, those who just try to fight God and wrestle with him. But you see that the reality is we're the ones who are hard-hearted. It's not a lack of God's faithfulness. It's a lack of our faith in him. Now, this judgment of Assyria, it actually happens. If you read at the end, or towards the end of Isaiah, in Isaiah uh, chapters 37 to 38, there's another king of Judah named King Hezekiah. And Assyria is about to attack him. Right? And he's got to think, oh man, I remember what he told my grandpa my great-great-grandpa or whatever you know Assyria's coming they're going to whoop us this is going to be bad and he actually prays to God for help and God delivers and says you know what I'm going to be merciful I'm going to deliver you from Assyria and you see the patience of God despite their hard-heartedness he's still merciful still gives them another chance and God helps and guess what Hezekiah does right after that he gets really proud and he shows off all of his riches that God gave him to an upstart kingdom named Babylon. He's showing it off. And then God tells Ahaz, you know all those riches you showed off to Babylon? They will all be carried off into Babylon in a few generations. God delivers Hezekiah, overly gracious, lavish in his compassion, and he takes that and becomes proud presumes upon God. I mean, that's the story over and over again. That's the story that we've experienced in our own lives. Right? God tells Israel, when you get into the land, here's one thing. I'm going to give you everything, milk and honey and, and land, and you're going to be protected, and there's going to be peace, and it's going to be great. You're going to have children and children and children, all these things. Just don't forget me. Cool? And immediately, as soon as they gain prosperity, they forget God. And here we see that happen again. In Isaiah 37, 38, King Hezekiah forgets God. And at the end of 2 Kings, we see God bringing Israel into exile. It seems like the more grace God extends, the further away his people get. And it's interesting, when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, his faithfulness is never in question. But he's the one asking the questions. He's like, don't worry about me. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. What about you? Will I find faith? Who's got faith? And he looks over Jerusalem and is weeping over their unbelief. In Luke 21, he looks over and he says, man, God's going to judge you guys. You guys have rejected the Messiah. You've rejected me. God will bring judgment upon you. And you know what happened? About 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Roman Empire came in and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and they burned the temple to the ground. And it's in the ground to this day. It was a historic judgment. 
And Jesus foretold it. Jesus was a prophet. There are severe consequences for rejecting the promises of God. You're not just missing out on blessings. You are calling upon yourself curses when you reject the Messiah, when you reject Emmanuel. If you trust in false gods, you will not only find yourself disappointed in them, but you will find the condemnation of God. So there are stakes. There are stakes to this. Faith is the engine of the Christian life. God, over and over again, think about your own life, the ways that God has delivered you and helped you and blessed you. Has that led you to more gratitude and humility, or has it led you to a harder heart? Has it led you to presume upon the grace of God? Has it led you to an entitlement? And we all feel that, and that's why we need to be reminded week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, of God's goodness to us so that we don't forget him when we are in the land of promise in the midst of our blessings. Now, how does this all come together? The house of David ends on a dark note. This is 2 Kings 25, verses 6 through 7. This is the, this is the moment when Israel is taken into exile. Babylon, verse 6, they, then they, Babylon, captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at, at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah, that's the king at the time of Judah, before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Imagine how that must have felt for an Israelite. God was with us through all of our idolatry, our faithless patience, for generation to generation, but now it looks like it's too late. That promise has expired. This is the last king of David, and the last thing this king of David sees are his sons, his lineage, his line in a pool of blood before they gouge out his eyes. This is brutal. Right, we're actually doing Second Kings in our youth group. They love it. Blood, destruction, attacking, all that stuff. You know, it's great stuff. You don't need Netflix. You just need to read Second Kings. Right? But this is devastating. And Israel, for the next few centuries, they don't have a king. You know, Daniel leads them back out of exile, but it's not the same. Then Persia takes over Babylon, so they're under the Persian rule. And then Greece takes over Persia, and they're under Greek rule. And then Rome takes over Greece, and they're under Roman rule. And then you get to the New Testament. It's when you open up the New Testament and the Gospels, you see all these people like Anna and Simeon and Zechariah, and they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. When do you need consolation? When you're mourning. What are they mourning for? Our king is gone. Our hope is gone. Is sin the last word on our lives? Is that the end of the story? Did we just blow it? And God gives another sign. Matthew 1, 21 to 23. On one quiet night in Judah, in the town of Bethlehem, God says to a young carpenter and his virgin wife, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a cue. It's a reminder. God is with us. Now, when was Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled? Was it fulfilled in his day or in Jesus' day? Yes. Right? Both. Old Testament prophecies have a dual fulfillment. There's one fulfillment that's in uh, near history, and then a future fulfillment that's even greater. So think about it. So Isaiah, in Isaiah's day, there was a child named Emmanuel born. But there's also going to be a future child even greater than him who will bring greater promise and greater blessings. If you've ever driven into the mountains, sometimes you'll look on the horizon and you'll see one giant mountain in the distance. And as you get closer, you realize there's actually two mountains. It's a smaller one on top of a bigger one, separated by distance. Old Testament prophecy is like that. It, at first, it looks like one flat thing. But when you get close to it, you realize it's two mountains separated by time or distance, and one is larger than the other. And so here we see the Emmanuel of Isaiah's day, but behind it a larger mountain of the true Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. And so you see in the original context, the Hebrew word for virgin is Betula, but the, the word that's actually used in Isaiah is Alma, which just means young woman. But when Matthew writes the New Testament, he uses the Greek word for virgin, Parthenos. So what he's doing here is saying this. In Isaiah's day, the fulfillment was just a young woman gave birth to a child. But the greater future fulfillment, the larger mountain, will be more magnificent. This child will be born to a virgin, not just a young woman. And this child isn't just a sign that God is with us. He is God with us. God in human flesh, the incarnation, truly God and truly man. His salvation is not from a foreign army, but from the very power of sin and death itself. This is why God came as a man rather than a spirit or an angel, because he came to redeem our humanity, to take what was lost in us, to have it die in his death and to rise us, to raise us again to a new kind of life. This is why one of the church fathers, Irenaeus, he says, the glory of God is in man fully alive. And a fully alive man is a man who is God-centered. A fully alive woman is a woman who is humble and obedient to God. This is what it means to be a true, genuine human being. And so in the incarnation, God restores our humanity. God has us die in Christ to raise us up into glory. God wants to glorify us. And you might be like, what the, what are you talking about? Lance leaves for one week and Brian sounds like Joel Osteen. No, no, I sound like the Apostle Paul. Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God justifies us. He forgives us to put us on the path toward glory, to resurrect us, to make us like Christ. That's what it means to be like Christ. He's remaking us in the image of his son. Not just people with a clean slate, but people who've been brought from death to life. That's an ongoing process that will be only be complete at the second advent 
when Christ returns. But that's our hope that we look forward to. So when we say God is with us, he is with us to transform us. To make us like him. To restore what was lost to fall. And that's the great hope of Emmanuel. He delivers us. He sanctifies us. And one day he will glorify us. That is the blessing of trusting him. But will we be like Ahaz? Too proud to receive this. Will we be like Hezekiah? Presuming upon God. So quickly forgetting God's grace. Or will we be like Mary and Joseph? Who receive it who trust it, who sing with joy that God's with us. God's with us. That's your sign from God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for being with us. We thank you that you have been faithful through all of your promises, that you have not left us without a sign, without an Emmanuel. Help us this season to reflect on that, to rejoice in all of the mercies you've given us, all the gifts that have come from your hand. Let's not forget you. Let those gifts be a motivation for greater worship. I pray especially for those who are struggling in their faith. Would the sign of your supper be a strength to them? Would hearing your words sung be a way that they would be ministered to? Would this sign of Emmanuel be a foundation and a strength for all of us? Or would we trust you? Help us to trust you. Help us to believe. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.